0: You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast. So please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to the Naked Pravda folks. It's Friday, May 8th, and I am your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English language edition. And this is the show where we take a broader look at some of the issues highlighted in Medusa's own reporting. On today's episode, we'll sit down with Roman Badanin, the founder and editor-in-chief of Praet, or Project, which is a Russian investigative journalism project launched in 2018 that more people should know about. Badanin has previously held top editorial positions at many of Russia's best respected independent news outlets, including Forbes Russia, RBC, and TV Rain. Just before he got Perekht off the ground two years ago, he was also an international fellow at Stanford University. So, yes, Mr. Badanin is an impressive guy. But the reason we're talking to him now has to do with the latest winners of one of journalism's most coveted awards. The Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting. I need to interrupt my own monologue, my own opening monologue here, to warn you that throughout this podcast episode, I'm going to mispronounce Pulitzer, because it's the Pulitzer Prize. It's not the Pulitzer Prize, even though the way the word is spelled, this it should be pew, pew, pure, pure, the pure prize. It's not the per prize, but I messed it up. It's already recorded. It looks like Pulitzer, but it's pronounced Pulitzer. That's just a word of warning for you folks. Saddle up for the Pulitzer episode, but it should be Pulitzer. Four days ago, the prize board did what it's done many times before and awarded this prize to the staff at the New York Times, bestowing this year's honor for, and I'm quoting here, a set of enthralling stories reported at great risk exposing the predations of Vladimir Putin's regime. The winning work includes six articles and two videos that cover the activities of Putin-connected Russian figures in wars in Libya and Syria, elections in Madagascar and the Central African Republic, and murders in Bulgaria and Ukraine. As you can imagine, the Russian authorities didn't exactly welcome this prize selection. Just three years ago, in the wake of Donald Trump's surprising presidential election, the New York Times won this same award for agenda-setting reporting on Vladimir Putin's efforts to project Russia's power abroad, revealing techniques that included assassination, online harassment, and the planting of incriminating evidence on opponents. This week, after the latest Pulitzer was announced, Russia's embassy in the United States wrote on social media, We consider this series of articles by the New York Times about Russia as an excellent collection of undiluted, russophobic fabrications that can be studied as a guide for creating false facts. Big whoop. I know, it's hardly shocking to hear that Moscow objects to an American organization celebrating American reporting about Vladimir Putin's bad deeds and predations. But the criticism of this year's award-winning journalism doesn't end at the Russian embassy. And here we come back to Roman Badanin, who says his news outlet, Prakt, broke the story at the heart of at least one of the winning works that earned the New York Times its latest international reporting Pulitzer. An article by Michael Schwartz, released in November 2019, titled How Russia Meddles Abroad for Profit, Cash, Trolls, and a Cult Leader, which appeared eight months after Prex, Master and Chef, How Yevgeny Prigozhin Led the Russian Offensive in Africa, and repeats many of the same findings. Both reports chronicle the same events, Madagascar's 2018 presidential election and Russians' role in the campaign And both articles also describe many of the same circumstances and characters, like the Russian political strategist whose support shifted during the race, and even the nickname they gave the incumbent president, who ended up losing his re-election bid by a landslide. Their report about Madagascar from November 2019 repeats all the main and even secondary conclusions from our reporting about Madagascar and Africa generally between March and April last year, Badanen told Medusa. He clarifies, however, that he is not accusing the journalists at the New York Times of plagiarism.
1: It's totally not a question of plagiarism. It's a question of, I would say, policy of hyperlinks and quotations, which is used in the New York Times newsroom.
0: That's Raman Badanen. He says he's really only interested in getting a little recognition for his team of journalists who broke a story in March 2019 that the New York Times then covered as an exclusive in November of that year. Badanin acknowledges that the New York Times did its own fieldwork and its own reporting for this story, but he questions the editorial decision not to acknowledge Preck's earlier work. For me, he told Medusa, the main issue is something else. Nowhere in this story did they acknowledge that we'd already reported on this topic. Either they were unaware of our work, which would be a professional issue, or they didn't want to devalue their own work with links to some small media outlet in Russia, in which case this is an ethical problem.
1: In my world, this fact deserves to be marked, at least hyperlinked. That's my position. You know, I'm a journalist with almost 20 years of experience. Uh, reading the story of, reading Michael's story on Madagascar, I saw that he made this road by himself. I mean, he met with the sources, he traveled to Madagascar, he found some documents on behalf of the CIA Center, but anyway, he did this job. And well, in terms of journalism, he made excellent job but there's one nuance he didn't credit the people who did the same almost the same months before him
0: can you explain like when Prakt, when you were involved in putting out this this report on prigozhin's activities in africa and madagascar specifically what kind of research or field work was necessary to put together that cuz you know as you said the New York Times, they, they put a reporter on the ground, they did their own work. What exactly went into producing your article? Can you explain a little bit about the, the process that was involved there?
1: I guess we did almost the same, except travel to Madagascar, because, well, in terms of Russian media, it's too expensive. And at that moment, it, was not, it didn't look like something necessary, because we found all the pre operatives who worked there, we found them in Russia and talked to them. So this story started, I don't remember exactly. Uh, Michael, for example, remembers when, when he started his excavations. I don't remember the particular date when we Started this story like it was three months before publication day, maybe. Uh, it was last winter. At that moment, I met with the close source of us in St. Petersburg, and he told me a very funny phrase Look, man, he said, uh, he in St. Petersburg, we have a big bunch of spin doctors. And we call them Africans, which means that these guys, they worked for Prigozhin in different countries of Africa. And he named, I don't remember in particular, like two names, two guys who worked in Madagascar. And that was the starting point for us. Starting from this moment, we like, then we, first, what we did, we, searched through their social media accounts and found a lot of interesting things because, well, I don't know the what was the reason behind that. Maybe it's all because of their stupidity, but some of them openly posted some reports from Africa in their social media. And starting with that, we found... A lot of facts about their presence in Madagascar.
0: One of the, the things that struck me is the differences between Prex report and the New York Times report is that the, the the tone seemed to be very different. Now they both catalog the the kind of the business um, objectives and a lot of the sort of incompetence of the actual spin doctors or strategists that were that were sent to Madagascar, but. The, the tone of the New York Times reporting, at least if it's certainly the, the way it's, the, the subject is introduced, it sounds a lot more sinister. And the, 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 Pulitzer, the Pulitzer Prize itself was awarded for what they said was a, a set of enthralling stories reported at great risk, exposing the predations of, the, of Vladimir Putin's regime. When you read your, your story, your report... It it doesn't, I mean, predations is, sounds like too strong a word to describe what's happening. It sounds, admittedly, the New York Times story does go into the kind of corruption involved that that made these efforts largely ineffective. But your story really gets at how these guys didn't know what they were doing at all. And they were basically just going through the motions to get a paycheck. And that, I mean, like, it, it comes off as a far less competent action or, or campaign Can you explain why do you think it is that, or maybe it's you know I I can't ask you to explain why the New York Times came to the conclusions that it did, but why did why did you, when looking over this information, decide to to why did you how did you decide on a narrative that was kind of more comical than sinister?
1: Because we we are trying to base on facts. Uh, So first, you are completely right. It's the biggest and the deepest difference between. Russian journalistic approach to Prigozhin activity, an American one, I saw the same in different stories, all the same with the presumable interference of Prigozhin in American presidential campaign. Second, we really thought that Prigozhin activity in Africa is important. But based on facts, we can see that in many cases, it looks like like fictional campaign, I would say, because all the operatives who were hired by Prigozhin, or maybe not all of them, but the big majority of them, they are non-professional in terms of African political reality. And in terms of American political reality as well, in other cases. So, we were trying to follow the facts. If we established that the guy who was the main person responsible for political consultancy in Madagascar previously worked in, uh, I don't remember now, uh, in Donetsk as a small spin doctor there, We cannot say that his role in Madagascar was vital, was important. So that's why we we were trying to base our conclusions on facts. And the fact is that Prigozhin is a dangerous man, but he's not, I don't know, he's not a biggest strategist we met.
0: Do you think he's more dangerous to non-Russians or to Russians? Of course, to Russians. Because that's, I think, that's that's an irony that a lot it's lost on a lot of Americans that Prigozhin is a very politically active person around the world and at home. But when it comes to where he's actually dangerous to people, it's probably inside Russia more than anywhere. The people, I mean, the people that he's had intimidated or even killed, maybe you know.
1: You know, we have we have one fact we need to remember. Prigozhin is a guy who has his own ten million. People City, St. Petersburg, he can do whatever he wants. That's the truth. Just imagine his, well, (laughs) his, I don't know, let's say, his power.
0: Michael Schwartz, the author of the New York Times award-winning Madagascar report, which is, of course, remarkably well-reported, from on the ground no less, and every bit well-written as you'd expect, well, Michael declined to appear on this podcast, but he did respond directly on Twitter to Badanin and several other Russian journalists who have complained about the absence of references to their work in the New York Times reporting. Tweeting in Russian, Schwartz said he's never once used information published by Precht or any other outlet without mentioning them or linking to them. He says he started researching Madagascar's presidential elections in January 2019, when he first learned about the local role Of Russian political strategists from documents provided by an investigative outlet called the Dossier Center. A New York Times spokesperson told Medusa roughly the same thing over email. Since we don't have a living, breathing guest to represent the New York Times, my new news editor at Medusa, Eilish Hart, will read aloud the newspaper's response to Medusa as it pertains to the Madagascar reporting. Eilish speaks French too, so her reading spares you my murdered pronunciation of the name of a French newspaper that appears in this text. Take it away, Eilish.
2: The New York Times clearly and openly cited numerous sources, including competitors, in its coverage. The Times began reporting on Russian activities in Madagascar in January 2019 when Michael Schwartz was given documents by the Dossier Center, the London-based organization credited in the Times article. As explained in the Times article, the Dossier Center provided Michael with the names of Russian operatives working in Madagascar and copies of internal communications by Prigozhin operatives discussing their plans in Madagascar. As explained in the Times article, the Dossier Center said the information had been obtained directly from moles working within Mr. Prigozhin's organization. Michael used this information as a launching pad for reporting on the ground in Madagascar and elsewhere around the world. He spent months independently confirming the information provided by the Dossier Center through interviews with political operatives, government officials, and political candidates in Madagascar. Michael and his reporting partner in Madagascar, Gael Bourgeat, also spent many months to expand the reporting beyond the materials provided by the Dossier Center to piece together the Russian operatives' actions in Madagascar and figure out how the effort was linked to Vladimir Putin himself. Project Media's report was published months after Michael had begun reporting on the subject. He did not use any material published by Project Media. It's worth noting that other news outlets, including the BBC, had also written about the presence of Russian operatives in Madagascar, and the Times story cited a publication in Madagascar, La Gazette de la Grande Ile, which had documented some of the Russian actions in the country months before the Project Media report. The Times story also quoted a newspaper publisher who had worked with the Russians.
0: Now, as I mentioned at the outset of today's show, this isn't the first time Russian investigative journalists have taken issue with the New York Times prize-winning reporting on Russia. Three years ago, the New York Times also won the Pulitzer Prize for international reporting. Like today, the Times faced allegations from the Russian media. In this case, Medusa. it so happens that Russian investigative journalists first broke the stories that later attracted American reporters' attention. One of the winning works from 2016, written by New York Times Moscow correspondent Andrew Kramer, and titled How Russia Recruited Elite Hackers for Its Cyber War, largely repeated the content found in two articles written earlier by Medusa special correspondent Daniel Turovsky. The Times cited one of these stories in its text. As they do now, spokespeople for the New York Times argued then, that the newspaper's award-winning work was the result of original reporting, stating that citations were made where necessary. What would you say about the state of investigative journalism in Russia today? There's obviously your project, project. Medusa does some too, I'll say. <laughs> uh, what, what are some other outlets that, that you would say are, are doing good work? And how, how does it compare to work, for instance, in the United States? Because a lot of the people listening to this are going to be American. They might for the very first time be hearing that there are investigative journalists in Russia. How would you, what would you tell an American who's surprised to hear about investigative journalism in Russia? How would you explain its existence and you know, who's doing the best work?
1: Well, uh, the most surprising thing I can share with you, that all of a sudden, right now, there is a good situation in Russia for investigative journalism. All of a sudden, again, I call it new Samizdat. Of course, you know what Samizdat is. It's the very interesting phenomenon of late Soviet Union, when. Thousands of people across country rewrote, republished and distributed, prohibited literature, prohibited journalistic works, prohibited music, and so on. all the same we have right away in Russia. What I mean, look, a few years ago, there were a lot of big media organizations in Russia, some of them were state-run, some of them were private, some of them were even foreign. Then the situation changed. We have no foreigners in Russian media, no more. And we have no good private players as well. But at the same time, a big bunch of new really tiny media organizations appeared at the same time. That's why I feel myself like, you know, a little bit optimistic about that. Even having such a small niche media can produce, I would say, at least competitive content with what is produced in massive newsrooms in New York, for example.
0: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. On today's show, we heard from Russian investigative journalist Roman Badanin in the press department of the New York Times regarding citations and acknowledgments in international reporting. And Badanin and I also talked a bit about the state of investigative journalism in Russia today. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and uh, leave a review on that podcast or, I don't know, Spotify, wherever you can do it, wherever you can leave a review, and especially if it's a good one, please do that to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon.